Tēnā katoa. Welcome. This is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. In today's episode, we're speaking with James Milton from Milton Winery on the east coast of New Zealand. James and Annie Milton have been involved in the New Zealand wine industry for a number of decades now and been in the biodynamic space probably longer than most. If you'd like to know anything more about today's podcast or the New Zealand Wine Podcast in general, just look us up online. But now, let's have a chat with James. So, welcome James, thanks for coming along. Hi Boris, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to have you here. Thank you very much. So, how did you get into the wine business? What uh, What's your story? Well, my story I think goes on for hmm, close to 50 years now. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was one of these lucky people who knew what it was that... I wanted to do as a very young person. Right. For example, when I was seven years old, I wanted to grow things. And when I was 14, I wanted to ferment anything I could get my hands on. Okay. And by the time I was 21, I was in Europe learning my trade from the masters, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing about this is that I don't have any uh, university qualifications per se uh, to put me into this zone of intellectual winemaking right yep so it was very much practical learning experience for you yes yeah and 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 for wine that started in in europe in france or uh well it started here in new zealand yes and and the wine industry was pretty was in a dynamic stage of that at that time yep but still in its infancy if i could say that respectfully for those people who've been doing it for 70 years prior to that right um but it was really looking at, of course, the world was changing in those times in Europe, and the styles of wines that were being made were um, uh, expressing what was happening in their region and their locality and their terroir, so to speak. Okay. So it was interesting to be able to have this as a young, impressionable 21-year-old to be given all of these um, you know, does Chateau Margot taste nice at Chateau Margot? Well, right. of course it does. And when you're 21 years old, you're just smitten. Yes, yes. And yeah. when you're in the Rhine Valley in Germany and you hear all those bells going off, the church bells going off in Oppenheim and Neerstein, and you're tasting these wines and creating an impression and getting a dream, and this is sort of like feeling like you've ever come to Nirvana. Yeah, right. You never forget that. It's, no, yeah. no, no, no. That's <clears throat> quite a strong experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. But, yeah, and so what, what did you do there what, what, while you were there? Were you uh, sort of working sort of in the vineyards themselves? Yeah. And well, I did a I did a wine course in Bordeaux, which was the appreciation of uh, Chateau bottled wines, mm-hmm. and then another course in Germany. And Germany was in the seventies was going pretty fast out then, and that was the different wine regions, eleven different wine regions in Germany. And then I worked in a cellar as a as a cellar master. Yep, for this little grower. Um, just doing what you do in the winery yep. and vineyard. Okay. So how long How long did that European stint last? Uh, two and a half years. Yeah. Then okay. I was going to come back here to New, to New Zealand and go to a university in Australia and then go and learn, be taught how to make wine and stuff. And then I was given an opportunity with my now wife, Annie, and uh, who, who originated from Gisborne. And Gisborne in New Zealand was a happening place in terms of wine. And uh, so... Instead of going to Australia, we went to Gisborne, and um, her family had some vineyards, and so we okay. took them over. Right. Okay. And what what were you what was growing there in Gisborne Ooh. for you in that in those days? Well, you know, bulk wine was a key to it, and yeah. they had. I'd prefer not even to think about the varieties that were growing, <laughs> but they were, some of them were hybrids, and some of them were 
Mulatugal and uh, Schessler and stuff right. like that. You know, Chardonnay so was the starting. When are we talking now? What are we? What? Nine, oh, God, even was this nineteen? Now it was nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And and so, how long did you spend in in Gisborne? So that well, I I went to Gisborne to go and see what was going on. Yep. Having worked there in the in seventy six, um, to see what was going on, and then this opportunity was put in front of us, both Annie and myself, mm-hmm. and consequently, it was sort of like a download of all of this inspiration that we had received from um, uh, from France and Germany and so on. So right. it was an opportunity to be able to practice what we had been seeing. Right. Okay. Okay. So. Annie had had a bit of a uh, stint as well overseas. And oh, no, Annie was over there. We sort of hopscotched away. She worked as a florist in London. And right. She had studied horticulture at Lincoln. Okay. And she's a plants person. Yes. And her family had land, a uh, farm and vineyards and so on, and gardens. So sort of working on the land was part of our right. raison d'etre. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we were lucky to be given an opportunity. Yep. In hindsight, it would have been better if I could... Um, think of it in that way is not to get so committed into a business when you're in your middle to late 20s it's a bit sort of demanding especially when interest rates were 22 percent right (laughs) yeah that's um that's pretty tough for um for a business so so how did how did that work out what what was the progression there did to um how long were you working on those in in that area um so we took over the we took over the working of the vineyard and for a few years and and uh and then established our winery, where we were then producing wine, mm-hmm. and had subsequently replanted some of the vineyards. And then that's just been an ongoing thing. We developed three more vineyards in the Gisborne region, and um, all the old varieties have gone a long time ago. And yes. So now some of our vines are 30, 32 years old. Right. Which is good, because you're seeing some maturity and flavor and taste. And So did you put in some... Um, what would then have been different varietals? Did you? Ah, well, you know, this uh, again is the wine industry. Is it a fashionable thing or not? That's always mm. the question that one should ask. And in, t- in this day and age, someone will ask you'll ask someone, "Would you like a glass of wine?" And they will say, "I like to have this one or mm. this particular style or that mm-hmm. particular style." Well, intuitively, we planted some varieties that uh, were not in fashion, but they were in vogue. Let's say so varieties such as Viognier. Mm-hmm. and Chenin Blanc and we planted Chardonnay and Riesling in our region Riesling is quite unknown because it's considered to be a northern region and Riesling should be grown in the south where it's cooler and the, there's minerals in the soil and then it came to pass that the varieties that we planted are actually there to stimulate the four senses the uh, four senses of taste mm-hmm. sweet, sour, salt and astringent right, okay in the last uh, 12 years, this fifth taste has become apparent more with Asian cuisine, and that's a taste of umami mm-hmm. or deliciousness. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm jumping a bit ahead here in terms of the varieties that we grow, but we've now established a kind of a paradigm that, well, you know, we don't use chemicals where, where we grow our grapes. We grow them biodynamically, um, so we don't use herbicides. Instead of herbicides, we use we plough the soil, and we don't use insecticides. Instead, we have flowers to get nectar to attract predators, and make teas to spray on the vines. Right. We don't use systemic chemicals. In other words, we don't use chemicals that go into the vine themselves. Um, we use 
tonics and we spray sulfur, which is atomizing to protect from mildew. And we don't use soluble fertilizer, so we make compost and, once again, teas and, and um, other herbal preparations okay. to make this all work. So as a result of that, we're looking at how the sensation of what it is that we're doing is affecting in the glass. And how did that come about? How did that um, movement across to yeah. what we might call organic wine yeah, well growing? That's, uh, you know, it's generally people who, who have a change of lifestyle or, or, or want to shift their farming practice in a particular direction um, have had an experience that they go, oh my God, I've got to change. And we never had that experience. We just went straight into intuitively into organic growing and then into biodynamic growing straight away. Right, okay. So, okay. And, and biodynamic, um, maybe just explain a little bit about what that means for okay. listeners. Um, our vineyards are one of the, some of the oldest biodynamic vineyards in the southern hemisphere and most probably about the ten, within the ten oldest in the world, which is quite interesting for a young country and a young person young people to be getting into this. Biodynamics is based on the philosophy of Dr. Rudolf Steiner. He was a person who developed Waldorf schools and schools for um, children with needs. Um, He developed philosophies on eurythmy or dancing and painting and art and learning um, a technique of thinking that children envelop what they can embrace in their own time Mm -hmm. and then he went on to develop these series of lectures which then to a a group of farmers in Europe in 1924 Um, these lectures were given to the farmers because they're upset that their seeds weren't regenerating like wheat and crops like that weren't regenerating fast enough and the health of their animals was deteriorating remember now this is after the first world war okay Principally after the First World War, during the First World War was when they developed poisons that were tasteless or and odorless. In other words, mankind figured out how to deal to other mankind at that time mm. in disguise. So he developed these series of lectures, which is then the beginning of the biodynamic movement. Now, bio means life and dynamic means energy. So Rudolf Steiner gave these indications as to how to work with life energy. Instead of fighting the disease, we're looking for the energy that makes life happen. And when we started off this 33 years ago, there wasn't much that was happening as as far as I was aware uh, in wine. And now when you go to Europe, uh, it's just amazing. Everybody, a a lot of the famous places that I visited in 76, the Chateaus in Bordeaux, as an example, one place, they're all now practicing biodynamics. Right. Okay. It's curious. Mm. Mm-hmm. What's brought that about for them, do you think? Well, I think that the suddenly people are realizing that their soil um, is actually giving a sensation and flavor to the vines and to the grapes and to the resulting wines. There is a great question as to whether biodynamically grown wines taste different or better than yeah. conventional wines. Mm-hmm. And over the last few years, it's becoming apparent that there is a different... Um, how would you say there is a different substance in these wines, sort of a a soft appeal to them. Okay, the tannins are smoother, possibly, but these are all subjective comments. 
it just seems that there's a social uh, environmental consciousness there and a social consciousness there and mm. and if there is a financial reward then maybe there are some people who are changing it for the market which we consider not to be very sincere but for example you know we can go to new york auckland sydney tokyo london and there are so many now restaurants that are serving only biodynamic wines um when I first went to New York in 2004, Biodynamics was hardly even heard of. Now, we, I should be there, actually, I should be there this, this week attending a festival for, for real artisan wine growers. Okay. All of them are Biodynamic. Yeah, yeah. It's so crazy. it's definitely a, a growing movement and a growing understanding of what that means and a growing appreciation maybe for the end result. Or, or maybe for the, the whole package, what the whole thing means, you know, that it is also environmentally... Uh, more sustainable and better, um, regardless even of the outcome of the product. Yes, <clears throat> but as well, I think that um, this next generation of people are wanting to have some environmental responsibility, but also their ability to express what it is that they are enjoying, like either on a plate or in a glass, um, they're actually thinking about what the taste is. They're actually just not fast food as they actually getting involved in the sensation mm. and if there is a compatible sensation with a particular person then they're enjoying that and then with social media these days they can express that very very quickly doesn't right. matter where in the world they are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the days of uh, oh this could be difficult but the days of wine journalism coming out in a monthly periodical you can have a beautiful dinner and a nice fantastic glass of wine in a restaurant and within several minutes it's throughout the world mm, mm, mm. so the ability for these people to communicate their desires and sensations is rapid immediate but to actually establish biodynamic wine growing it takes seven years at least to actually get back into harmony right right okay okay yep and so what what are some of the biggest challenges for you in in being biodynamic well you see that's a really good question because once again you're looking at the challenges and this is where conventional agriculture and conventional thinking uh, are. They're looking at how to control something. They're looking at what's the difficulty. And when I say we're in the business of farming ease, not fighting disease, then in answer to your question, I would reflect it back to you and say, what pleasures do we get from this? What's our satisfaction? Right, okay. And yeah. so we have the same... Uh, challenges as many other people but instead of for example instead of sitting blindly on a tractor spraying herbicide and killing weeds we would spend more time uh, working the soil to get air into it so we get a different um, type of vegetation growing on the soil and that vegetation might be leguminous giving fixing nitrogen into the soil or it could be a flowering plant to attract insects and we have the ability to be able to have a more wider diversity of vegetation that vegetation in the challenge would be considered a weed we look at them and say these are lovely plants that are there for the whole growing environment right maybe running a business these days is one of the greatest challenges we have with interest rates and the way the new zealand dollar is and what the market is doing and so on that's that's a challenge but it's always there yeah yep so outside of outside of the growing just the normal wine business is um Mm. Um, if you have your house in order and Mother Nature looks after you, 
because she's seen and she's seen your intentions and she respects that. And this is after twenty eight years minimum mm. that these things sort of all fall into place within the kingdom of nature. Then the challenges and maybe the ideals seem to dis- seem to um, change. For example, for a fermentation, you are supposed to control the fermentation with cooling or whatever. And you're supposed to add cultured yeast to get a particular smell. And you've got to have the, the acidity and the, and the pH correct. So maybe you've got to add um, some acid or, you know, to get that particular chemical number. So now with biodynamics and the way we're growing wines, we're looking at the biology of the wine and we're trying to find out how the juice is happy and what makes the yeast and bacteria grow and offer them compatible conditions. And to a degree that in terms of wine making, the, um, the, the, the story of wine making is really not we're making wine, we're just letting it grow. We're like a midwife in a birth. Um, some friends of mine in Europe say, you know, of, of course they have wineries and cellars and stuff, and they say they spend more time in their vineyard looking after their vines and the environment <clears throat> to such a degree that they uh, can't often remember where the light switch is in the cellar right? because they don't have to spend so much time in there making wine. So now, these day, in this day and age, we don't, by and large, use yeast or bacteria uh, or enzymes, and we don't have to add acid or sugar. And we invariably would use yeast. Uh, um, so we're... What we harvest from the vineyard is what you get in the bottle. Right. Okay. And, th- and that's probably a good point to note that biodynamics is not just about the growing, um, it's right through the winemaking yeah. process as well. And so less interventional, more guidance, and what have we got? And, and then, of course, those wines are accepted in some fine dining rooms throughout the world. Mm. 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 Um, yeah. And so have you seen biodynamics taking off in New Zealand? Oh, yes. Yep. Yes, yes. I mean, we have this little goal that 20% of the vineyards in New Zealand should be certified organic um, by 2020. Okay. And now, the, and whether we're going to reach that point or not, there's is, is, is quite a lot of other criteria involved with that. But now we're seeing some very famous brands in this country who are stopping using herbicide and as a result have adopted an organic approach. And then they suddenly see and taste what biodynamic people are doing here and overseas. And it just seems to be a, a natural route for them to carry on. Right. Yep. So, yeah, suddenly we're being, being considered normal. Mm. And, and is that reflective of elsewhere in the world as well, biodynamics in New Zealand, um, proportionately, say, for the US? Or um, what about some of the older older regions such as France you, you mm. sort of touched on that there was a little bit going on there but is it a little bit slower in the uptake there no no it's even faster there okay I think because of the culture and the nature of the people mm-hmm. to my I mean of course when if you can recognize something you have resonance with something you can always recognize it and I that's what I look for so I see it a lot for example Chateau uh, Chateau Latour in Bordeaux has started to input biodynamic techniques into their vineyards. Mm-hmm. Now, Chateau okay. Latour is, a, you know, to get just a glass of that wine is a, an honour and a privilege. Um, and you'd have to say they are so famous, 
why on earth would they want to compromise their investment by not using control mechanisms? Which I think is a really good way of thinking about it. And what they've actually seen now is that their investment is based on their land, and their land is going to be there. It's been there for a thousand years or more, and it's going to be there for another thousand years. And so they have got to stop putting chemicals on it Mm. to protect their investment. And then the wine tastes better. Right. I mean, let's do this talk in 10 years' time and see what's going on because it's all about taste and sensation. Yeah. As I said, you know, it's a new normal. Right. So it's it's not just a winemaker's, vineyard owner's-led. It's also consumer. There's a consumer pool, consumer demand there as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge consumer pool. But then when you say, you know, a lot of these... Um, Companies are owned by banks, insurance companies, and they're looking at their investment and then their marketing people are looking at what the demand is and they can't change their wine style because that's that's what they're famous for. And they're seeing just... Look, I can't describe describe it enough, the impact that is happening there. It's incredible. But um, it won't turn to a majority most probably. It's just... uh, it's just what's happening out there in the world of wine. There's a new evolution that's going on. Mm. It's mm. exciting. And uh, how do you see that fitting in with New Zealand's place in the in the wine world um, compared to other markets? Or sorry, other other not other markets, other wine growing regions, and how New Zealand fits in. New Zealand is interesting because it's a maritime climate. It's an island surrounded by water compared to continental Europe or Australia or America or even South America, um, South Africa. As an example, they're all, cont- they're all great land masses and they have old geology. Um, New Zealand's wines are really well sought, very highly sought after in the world and Sauvignon Blanc is not, um, it's, a, it's a wine that has turned so many heads I think about 80% of our exports are now Sauvignon Blanc. There is a character in those wines that is people who are new to wine just absolutely adore. And so you should support. We need to support the champions. We don't want to change something that ain't broke just at this stage. Um, and long may that last for the goodness of the industry, but when greed and overproduction take place then there's only one way that these styles of wine will go Um, and that's what we have to hold off at bay for some time now and I say that in relationship to the examples you have from Tuscany or Beaujolais Beaujolais in the 70s, 80s was incredibly famous, incredibly famous and Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc now or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc now is very very famous as well the interest is there, it grows and then it wanes off and we've got to see what's happening in New Zealand, what the next um, succession is going back to Beaujolais now we have the situation that in Beaujolais now we're getting far better quality wines again and the next next generation is coming in and reinventing some different styles of wine of Beaujolais and maybe the land prices are more attractive there for the growers to to develop or maybe the demand for a different style of wine uh, is emerging. I mean, 
in this country here, some of these wild Sauvignon Blancs that you get are so delicious. And they're nothing like the commercial product that has made our country so famous. Mm. I've kind of lost the plot. No, that's okay. Um, so so where, do you, where do you see some of the things that are emerging for New Zealand in outside of biodynamics? Ooh. That's a hard one to answer. But once again, if we look at our culture and we look at our children or we look at our, the young people, um, who are able to make an impression. I think that we are looking, as I said before, about the taste and the memory of the taste and that maybe the cosmopolitan nature of our food is going to be reflected in the wines that we produce. In other words, people would start, may start with Sauvignon Blanc and then they'll move on to other substances between, as I said before, the sweet, sour, salt and astringent and umami. Other wines such as Viognier or Chenin Blanc or Petit Mansang or, or Syrah. Okay, so a food, a food-led yes. direction. Yes, right. I think so. Right, right, okay, okay. Yeah, because that, you know, that's certainly um, happening a lot is, you know, with the growth of uh, food TV and the appreciation of it. You know, certainly um, see in you know, my children just a, a real interest yeah. Um, that was probably certainly not there for me at um, at a similar age, um, in the diversity of um, ingredients and food experience that's available now. And, yes, and that coupled with like tapa and the sharing of plates. You know, yep. you don't sit down so much now for an entree and appetizer and yep. a, what do you call it, a main and mm. then a dessert, mm. and go through that categorised dining experience. It's mm. really like an indulging in different flavours. Yes, so that yeah, the, the sort of plates. That's evolved in small plates, plates yeah. and large plates out of the tapas style of eating, and, and which probably encourages more discussion too, doesn't it, around what you're eating because you're sharing it rather than just going, well, I'm having this and uh, you're having the fish. You know, I'm having the steak and you're having the yeah, fish. Yeah. yeah, and then you have to buy a bottle, whereas now you you can buy you know so, so many choices of wine by the glass because the technology is there to keep the bottles for four, five, six days or however long it's going to take. Right, yes. Yeah. So as you move through your dining experience, you can go, okay, we'll have, we'll have a glass of this now because that might yeah. go better with where we're moving to. And mm. Well, you've mm. ordered you know, this sort of spicy food or mm. that sort of umami food and you can take that wine and this wine. And mm. I mean, uh, it's, it's amazing. Mm. Mm. I think eating has been thrown out into the street and just put into the sunshine to be enjoyed. Right, yeah. Which is kind of why we are championing um, Viognier. Because okay. it is such a versatile wine that stimulates that umami deliciousness character. Um, that's that's one of the reasons that we want to grow that wine. And then there is the cousins of Vionnet, Marsan, Roussan, and um, Vermentino. And we're going to see these things happening. Okay. So are, are you looking at those varietals? Yes. Or you're, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mainly because instead of having mono cepage, instead of having a one variety wine, such as Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or Chenin Blanc or Viognier, we're wanting to have these other varieties in there now to give high notes and low notes and different sensations on your palate. So blend? A blend, yeah. Mm -hmm. Blends of sort of in the 80s and 90s have always considered to be cheap stuff, whereas you look at some of the amazing white wines in the world, some of the blends are are, 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 incredibly Grand Cru wines. 
So, so you're looking at some existing blends uh, from uh, Europe to your Southern Rhone, you know. Okay, okay. So what what would they be just for uh, Viognier, Roussan, Marsan, Vermentino, as I said before. Right. Okay. Um, sort of soft, not crisp acidity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, we have Chenin Blanc as an example, which is one of my most loveliest wines I just adore. Yes. And um, which is all about acidity. And so then we're looking at different um, vessels to hold this wine and to create different flavors and textures, whether it's large wooden barrels or okay. vertical or horizontal stainless steel barrels. And we're hearing more and more these days about amphora, the old ancient um, storage vessel and fermentation vessel and, and the use of concrete. So we can get different flavors from one variety that can bring complexity to it. Right, okay. And so Chenin Blanc, uh, do you have Chenin Blanc planted? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's yep. our main one. Right, okay. okay. I do, blowing hot air around the place, I think Jancis Robinson said it's the best Chenin Blanc in the world outside the Loire Valley. That's what she said. I'm not going to do Yeah, it. no, that's that's good praise. So how long have the have you had the Chenin Blanc in? Has that been uh, quite a while now? It, the, they were first planted in 1979. Ah, okay. But we've since pulled them out and replanted. And, but Chenin Blanc is our major variety. Right. Okay. It likes the soils we have. We like the crisp acidity and the star and the flavours that we get with it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is export a uh, big part of what you do? Um, it it's never more than fifty percent of our production. Okay. Because we want to we want to f- keep focused here in New Zealand, keep mm-hmm. focused around the country, and the different types of selling mechanisms that we have here in New Zealand, and e-commerce is quite a big one. Okay, um, but then we sell wine in markets that we like to visit, that we get stimulation from visiting. So, for example, Tokyo and Japan. Oh, Japan is an amazing market because we just love the culture, we love the food, we love the sensations, we love the enthusiasm, and so we can bring some of that uh, inspiration back here to influence the wines we make. Right. Okay. Which was which was that popped up as a question for me. So, so when you visit these markets and uh, such as Japan and Tokyo and experience the food that's there, does that then sounds like it influences then perhaps your winemaking? Yes, exactly, yep. from an inspirational point of view. But if mm. you can recall, we're not actually making wine, we're growing wine, so that when we prune the vines with our secateurs, that's when we're sort of having an influence on what the taste will be. Okay, right. And then keeping it or raising it up like a child, raising the wine up like a child in the cellar, um, the experiences that we've had in Japan actually says to us, okay, so what do we want? Do we want it to be delicious or salty or right. savory or and so we can do that with using skins or um, stalks or seeds or barrels or natural substances right okay okay which is interesting because it's uh, almost reflective of the point we touched on earlier where the consumer's appreciation of food is influencing their yeah. wine decisions and yeah. wine drinking, which is similar to what you've just explained there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, like we're trying to make a wine that meet, meets the market mm. uh, without adjusting the flavour chemically. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, like, um, let me give you an example. MSG, monosodium glutinate, was invented to make the food taste more, mm, I don't know if the word appealing is right, but to give the food a greater depth of flavour. 
MSG, the natural form of that, is glutamic acid, and some grape varieties have higher amounts of glutamic acid uh, than naturally. others naturally. Yep. And Viognier and Marsan are one of those two varieties. So okay. we're actually looking, therefore, at the savouriness and where it sits on your palate. Instead of it just being either sweet or acid, then we have all these range of flavours around the outside of our tongue and further in the back of our palate, which makes the flavour um, more enhanced. And then when you think of foods like seaweed or nori or wasabi or mm, sashimi, raw fish or something like that, it just relishes that sort of flavour right? compared okay. to a crisp, hard, a crisp acid wine. Mm. Mm. So yeah, food driven, cultural driven, and also for the love of life, for goodness sake, that's what we're doing it for. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, to have uh, that sensation of a wonderful food and wine match uh, on the palate is just um, unforgettable. Yes, yeah. yes, it does. It just um, creates that creates that memory uh, because you know possibly. Because of where you might be at the time, what you might be experiencing, but also that the smell and taste uh, gets embedded in the memory as well, doesn't it? Mm. In the combination of those. Mm. Mm. Yes, it does. Mm. I think, um, you know, this, it's a hard business, this business. Um, it's a lot of work. There's a, quite an amount of stress in it. So if you can find things that bring joy and happiness, yeah, um, then bring roll them on. Yeah, wow. It's a good thing to have in life in general, isn't it? Oh, we aspire to have that. And then, of course, the thing is trying to find the time to sit and wonder, which is a little thing that we're talking about a bit more these days at, at work. Yeah. Because we go flat out all day. Right. And we just want to sit down and find the shade of a tree. Yeah. Time to think and dream and mm. be inspired. Mm. Mm. You know, like one of the things that I talk about is one of my um, topics is they, and, and they said I was a dreamer. And this is all about the resurgence of biodynamics and where that came from. Right. Okay. So I'm wondering if I can spend more time dreaming under a tree. Very good. Oh, well, thank you, um, James. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much for coming in. It's short and sweet. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed that. Why don't you come to Gisborne one day? We Well, I certainly, yeah, we'd love to. Anyway, it's a, a great place to visit. Yes, and, and it's, a, it's like the front porch of the world for the, the way the sun rises and our yes. soils are nice and young and vibrant and fresh and the wines that we make are sort of a true reflection of that. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, it's been, uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on. Thank you very much, James. Thank you, Boris. Thank you. We've just been chatting with James Milton from Milton Vineyards and Winery in Gisborne on the east coast of New Zealand. If you'd like to check out some of our other podcasts, just look us up online, New Zealand Wine Podcasts. We've got some other great guests coming up shortly, including Cameron Douglas, Master Sommelier, Jules Matthews from Q Wines and Sir Graham Avery from Cellini. We look forward to your company again shortly. Hey Kono Mai, bye for now. <laughs>